We are today gathered with the privilege of concluding a book of the Torah, the book of Genesis. We are up to the very last portion of the book of Genesis. In Hebrew, it's called Vayechi. It's a special in several ways, this portion. First of all, it's the conclusion not only of Genesis, but it's the conclusion of this dramatic story of Joseph and his brothers. And it's the conclusion of the patriarchal, matriarchal narrative that was the bulk of Genesis, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah stories that's coming to a conclusion with the death of the last patriarch, Jacob, and his dramatic ending. Rabbi Lewert, of blessed memory, one of her most popular uh, prayers, poems, <coughs> that she wrote is called Death is Always Personal. Um, and, um, and indeed, death is always personal. The death of family, of friends, people that we know. <coughs> A friend of mine d- died this past week. There's people in the room who have relatives who have died this past week. I did a funeral yesterday morning um, of a really remarkable woman, not a member of the congregation, but mother of a friend um, who was brought here to the United States by Aaron Copeland, part of a remarkable musical family. Her husband was a conductor in Argentina. They they were from Argentina in any event. Um, You know, and at the funeral yesterday, happened to be at Mount Sinai, when the ceremony was over in the chapel, the first thing that I said was, uh, in conclusion, Mount Sinai will never be the same. Um, it, was, it was mostly performances of all these people that got up and sang and pr- played guitar and piano and whatever, because this woman's life was so filled with music. In fact, when I saw her in the hospital, as she was dying, she was singing, literally singing, and as she was at the end of her life. Um, and people end their lives in different ways. That's really where I am thinking about it. Some end their lives privately and quietly. Some end their lives singing, uh, <clears throat> believe it or not. Um, and some end their lives surrounded by family and friends. Um, my grandmother died uh, it was one of those scenes where my family was there and grandchildren are there and my sister who lives, one of my sisters, I have three, my sister who lives in Puerto Rico was on her way. So my grandmother's out and, you know, dying and in a coma. And so we're telling my grandmother, of course, Debbie's on her way, Debbie's on her way, Debbie's coming. And as often happens in life with many people, so my grandmother waited, you know, she was there and waited and waited and waited. Debbie shows up, comes over, puts her hands on Grandma Ernie and says, okay, I'm here, and Grandma Ernie dies. So, you know, and we, many of us have had experiences of family and friends and um, at the end of their lives with very powerful connections. The reminder that we're more than just this. We're more than just our physicality, which is always important. And uh, And much of what happens 
emotionally and spiritually and uh, around the end of life has to do with issues of legacy. What are we leaving behind? Um, sometimes it's who are we leaving behind? And it's the question, and certainly in Jewish life uh, for several thousand years, has also reverberated the challenge to live a life so that your legacy is something that matters. And to raise the questions while you're living of who do I want to be? What legacy do I want to leave? How do I want people to remember me? If, I, if we had a class on death and dying and I had everybody write their own eulogy, which is a fun thing to do, um, to write your own eulogy, say, well, you know, <clears throat> how do you want to be remembered? If, if you got to do it, not a bad idea, by the way, write your eulogy and then leave it for someone, for those who are coming after you so that they say what you want to have said about you. Because I'm always sitting with families going, well, you know, what do you want to make sure gets said about your dad, about your mom, about, you know, and it's the worst time to be thinking about it when you're in the midst of that shock and grief and all the decisions you have to make. Well, this week's Torah portion is about that. It's not only the end of Genesis, but it's also this unique drama of Jacob talking to all of his kids and leaving his own sort of legacy, writing his own legacy. In fact, (laughs) this is his legacy. You know, what distinguishes Jacob from Abraham and Isaac? Well, what's one of the things that distinguishes Jacob from Abraham and Isaac is that Abraham's name is Abraham, and Isaac's name is Isaac, and Jacob's name is what? Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Israel. And what's the difference between his name Jacob and his name Israel? Yeah, you know, Jacob, he got that name from his parents. Israel, he gets that name allegedly from God. You know, it's like tapped by the divine. And more than that, Jacob gets this name Yisrael, literally a version of God wrestler as a challenge not just as a reward it's both a reward and a challenge you know names carry power names have a sense of connection beyond today beyond this moment we each have our own relationship to our own name or names and everybody has more than one name unless you're Madonna or Cher or (coughs) then maybe you have one name (coughs) but yeah my name became Rabbi about 43 years ago (coughs) Rabbi Um, and you often mention in your sermons that we all have three names one that we're born with the name the name name. it's it's a favorite baby naming conversation yes Uh We have at least, Jewish tradition teaches we have at least three names, the name our parents give us, the name our friends call us, and the name that we earn for ourselves. That's the legacy part. That's the, here's Jacob at the end of his life, surrounded by his kids, grandkids, dying in a foreign country, dying far away from his home, quote, dying under the patronage of his son, dying 
in a sense, a uh, stranger in a strange land. And so we'll see what he, maybe we'll see if I ever get to the text. We may actually see what he says as he's coming to the end of his life, too. But that's, these, this legacy for us, this legacy meaning the scroll that's behind over here, and the Torah itself is a legacy. These stories are our legacies. And one of the legacies we leave when it's the end of our lives, hopefully, are stories, our own stories. Go to, go to funerals. What happens? People tell stories. You know, <clears throat> every funeral. I'm always telling people, there's no way we can capture 90 years of someone's life, 80 years of someone's life, 20 years of someone's life, in a few sentences. No matter how many stories we tell, there's never enough stories. Because every day is a story. You're going to tell a story for every day? And every one of us has multiple stories. <clears throat> so we could go to a funeral, have everybody in the room get up and share their, all their stories. Still, that's not the person. That's my story. That's the, the fun for me, fun I use in quotes, of uh, the irony always of sitting with families talking about an anticipation preparing for a funeral if they have several siblings or children is, is the challenge of always recognizing that everybody grew up in a different family <laughs> tell me about your father <laughs> and the siblings are looking going what family did you grow up in who are you talking about? <laughs> like 100% of the time. <clears throat> Almost 100% of the time. 99% of the time, it's like, what? what do you, you know, that wasn't my father. That wasn't my mother. That wasn't my... Because we all see through these. These are our lenses. This is my lens. <clears throat> I see the world filtered through my own experience, through my own lenses, and there's no one else in here but me. Well, that I'm aware of anyway. There may be some other people in here, but I'm the only one. I, I keep the other ones out as much as I can. <clears throat> yeah. We don't talk Judy. about death and dying very much. It, it's still a taboo subject <clears throat> in many cases. And I have to say that those stories that come up at Shiva and, yeah. and after Shiva and, and social conversations are great comfort, or at least they were to me uh, in the deaths I've experienced. Yes. People, it enriches my my hold on that spirit that was so much a part of my thinking in my life. A hundred percent. I'm always telling people, share stories. Yes. Share stories with the family. It enriches their experience of their own relatives, people that they love. <coughs> this is a unique scene in the Torah, this deathbed scene. There, you know, it didn't happen to Abraham. It didn't happen to Isaac. It's happening to Jacob. Because, as I said, Jacob is more than Jacob. Particularly here, we know. Jacob as Israel is not Jacob the individual. Jacob as Jacob is this guy. You know, this guy who grew up as a kind of spoiled kid, who steals his brother Esau's blessings, who flee, has to run away for his life, who ends up marrying falling in love with Rachel, has a bait and switch and ends up marrying Leah instead and then has to work another seven years for the woman he loves. You know, here's Jacob with all this amazing drama 
and romance. It's the most first romantic, really, story in the Torah <clears throat> is Jacob falling in love with Rachel and willing to work 14 years for her, right? And on and on. And <clears throat> having all these kids and you know, all, the, all the drama that we know. <clears throat> and and here's, he's at the end of his life. And as I mentioned last week, when he meets Pharaoh, he says to Pharaoh, you know, few and hard are the years of my life. Even though he's 100 and whatever years old, 40, whatever, whatever the number was, 47, 147, if I recall, years old, right? Well, actually, that's the very beginning. We get to know how old he is when he dies. And his lenses are, look how tough my life was. Tough. Look at all the adventures he had. Look at all the stuff. Uh, God spoke to him a whole bunch of times. Hey, Jacob. You know, it's like you, you wrestled with God. You did all this stuff. I'm giving you this name. I'm, you know, it's like you are going to be the father of nations. He is not just Jacob. He is Israel. He is us. He is the collective. He is the symbol of an entire people that flow from him that were still around thousands of years later. And the poor guy is going, poor me. Poor me. Which to me is always one of the most important lessons of the whole. Attitude is everything. You know, did he have a shitty life, this guy? I mean, really? What was his life like? You know, he had a heroic life. You know, these are like Greek mythology, or, well, it's Jewish mythology. This is like Jewish mythology. He's one of the great <laughs> mythic, and not even like Jewish mythology, it is Jewish mythology. One of the, you know, the great dashing characters. Big and strong, all this stuff. Anyway, but how he saw his life at the end, and what happened to him when his favorite son allegedly was killed, and how he lived those 20 years when he was, when he thought Joseph was dead, and then he was dead. He was dead for 20 years. Literally, it says that <coughs> when he heard that Joseph was alive, he came alive again. It was as if he had died himself for all those 20 years. You know, attitude. So here we are at the end of his life, the very beginning of this. This is like the first instance of what we would perhaps call now a living will. When we die, hopefully we have wills or what's the equivalent of wills that aren't really wills? Trusts. That's it. I had a will, now I have a trust. It supersedes the will, which is silly because it was the same stuff in both. Anyway, um, what have I got to give? The, um, so we have wills where we designate where our stuff goes, what happens to our things. And then in Jewish tradition, we have living wills. We have ethical wills, which is really what the legacy is about. It's not who gets the car. Who wants the car anyway? You drive it off the lot, it's lost half of its value, right? So nobody. It's not about the car. <clears throat> well, it's about this car, car, Ruben. No. Um, it's not about the car. It's, a, it's about. Yeah. It's about. What's your real legacy? What's the ethical will? What do you want to leave? What are the values you want to pass down? And then how do you do it? In this story. <coughs> Excuse me. On the one hand, 
it's as if Jacob is predicting the future. It's sort of, it's not really much of a loving end of life um, ethical will. He's leaving. He's, in essence, telling his children what's going to happen and describing their personalities. And but it's a reminder to us, while we still can make decisions about who we are and the values that we want to pass down to figure out how do you do that? How do, I, how do I live my life in such a way that my daughter learns the lessons I would like her to learn? Most of which is frankly out of my control. <laughs> By the way, I just figured I would admit that part. <clears throat> you know, but it's always like amazing and refreshing and startling when Gable will um, be, if will see us at all, no, well, Gable will be with us, and she'll make some comment about something <clears throat> that um, she's doing, whether animals are helping somebody, Gable's always helping other people, <clears throat> and say something about that, because, of course, that's what she saw growing up, that she'll actually acknowledge that something that Didi or I did um, she used as a model I mean that she just acknowledged it that was really the point which was, was very nice of her and she knows it's nice of her which is why she does it because then she asks for something but because um, <laughs> she's not a dummy in any event, in any event <laughs> it's just nice you know as a parent to sort of get a little positive feedback here and there because you do what you do and everybody, you know, is a different person. They're unique. And everybody has the flip side of what I was saying before about all kids experiencing their parents differently is the same for parents and kids. You know, that you have people who have lots of kids. Some of you in the room have a number of kids. Know that just because you had them all doesn't mean they're all the same, you know, at all. Right? And they're like doing what they're doing. They're like, where'd that come from? Where'd that person come from? How is that person mine? You know, and it happens all the time, in, and sometimes in very dramatic ways, of course. You know, we have, um, we won't go into it because we all know what I'm talking about. Um, because everybody's following their own soul and their own heart, and, um, and that's part of what we're doing. So, um, the very beginning of this Torah portion, um, oh, the other thing that's unique about this portion is. It's the first experience we have of, uh, really, of a deathbed, the power of a deathbed promise. You know, I don't know if there's any legal power to deathbed promises. We've got a bunch of lawyers in here, but no. Um, unless I suppose it's written down or something. No, right? <clears throat> but this is a story from the Torah of the power of deathbed promises. Because... Jacob and Joseph, as a matter of fact, he end up with deathbed promises. When I die, do the following. And I know from my experience in life, my rabbi experience in life with lots and lots and lots of people who've gone through the death of parents, that words matter. You know, there are lots of people who have all kinds of interesting and challenging relationship with their parents and then at the end of their lives they'll say something some one thing 
that then sends their child off in a whole different direction, or <clears throat> there's a sense of the compulsion to make sure that that is done, or taken care of, or acknowledged, or honored, regardless of how contentious the relationship might have been up to that very end of their life. Something so powerful about that, those end-of-life requests or admissions or statements. Yeah, Steve. Common law, speaking from a recognizes the validity of the deathbed <clears throat> statement. Uh, there is, uh, you probably all know that hearsay is inadmissible, but there's an exception to the hearsay rule which says a dying declaration. Someone who, by all accounts, is on the verge of death and makes a statement. The statement can be really important, like, He's the guy that shot me. Right. And that becomes admissible because the, the law recognizes the idea that if someone has nothing left to lose... they got nothing to lose. ...and they're, they're dying, <clears throat> they're, you know, their last breath, that has some more credibility than just a guy, you know, saying, hey, he told me that this guy shot somebody. So right. what you're saying is codified in common law. What if they're What if they're what? Well, I mean, look, you can you can look at all kinds of exceptions and say this guy was wacko or whatever, or he was uh, under the influence of drugs. But but if you can, and that would be not so much a question of whether it's ever admissible, but how much weight to give it. But if you can show that someone is a relatively sound mind and uh, they had no hope of living, it was right. it was the end then that statement is given yeah. credibility. credibility. Understandable. So, <clears throat> you, you want to read the text? <laughs> so I'm going to read the text. So, turn to the very beginning of the chapter, of the portion, because, <clears throat> you know me, I can just keep talking and never even read one line of the Torah that we're allegedly studying. <clears> that <throat> says, oh, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> Just one more thing. Right? Did you just, see a squirrel? Just, just one more thing, yeah. Uh, uh, Genesis began, how did Genesis begin? Creation of the world. Creation of the world. And how does it end? Death, death. death of Jacob. Death of Jacob and another creation. It end, begins with the creation of the world. It ends with creation of the Jewish people. That's, we're now about to be launched as the Jewish people in this Parsha, more than just the physical body, descendants, children, whatever. That's part of the adoption that goes on here of of uh, Joseph's children by Jacob. So Jacob lived. Look, I'm reading a line of the Torah. By Yaakov. Oh, the other thing that's interesting is. Um, is that it, the first word and the name of this portion is Vayichi, which means and he lived, but it's really all about death and dying and not about living. It's about end of life. Oh, yeah, good midrash in there. Mm-hmm. It's just like Hayasera, the life of Sarah, but the first thing happens is she dies in the portion. <clears throat> and <clears throat> since we're, I don't want to do that, since we're talking about funerals, and death and dying today 
Rabbi say that it's called Vayichi Yaakov and Jacob lived to remind us two things. Thing number one is when it says Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years that living here doesn't just mean his physical existence. He really lived those 17 years. Those 17 years, the quality of his living was different than before. Why? Joseph. Because this was the 17 years, like the first 17 years of Joseph's life before he got sold into slavery, where Jacob was fully alive before he died because he was reunited with his son, number one. And number two, to remind us that it is at the end of our lives that we end up having these conversations about our, own, our legacies and what matters as we sit and remember the people we love at the end of their lives, whenever that might be, whether expected or sudden. That's what we do. What's where funerals and memorials are. We get together and we talk about the things that mattered to us about that person's life. You know, and it's not usually the bio that matters and how many degrees somebody's got and things like that. You know, when people tell their stories, those aren't the things that move us. It's the small moments of life. I suppose I often say it's not the headlines of life that matter, it's the fine print that matters. The fine print is the moments in our lives that we cherish and we carry with us, most of which we can't predict in advance and don't know that they're even happening. It's one of the wonderful things about our own memories in life. You know, the things that we remember our whole lives are usually things unanticipated. You know, there are... You know, I used to talk to, to all the bar and bat mitzvah kids about this because, you know, there are maybe a handful of times in our lives when we know in advance that's going to be an amazing, powerful, memorable moment. You know, my bar mitzvah or my bat mitzvah or my wedding or giving birth to this child you know, or my graduation from something remarkable that I spent a lot of time becoming or I became a rabbi. You know, my ordination is fixed. That moment, that ceremony 43 years ago is fixed in my mind. That was a powerful experience for me after the five years of rabbinic school and on and on. And um, anyway, you don't need to hear about it. But, you know, there, but th- there's not a lot of those moments. Most of the moments we remember our whole lives snuck up on us, you know, and we didn't even realize they were going to be that memorable until after the fact. You know, and often they're the simplest of things. You know, some memory of sitting under a tree somewhere, at a beach somewhere, on some island somewhere, or whatever, you know, that happened to be there. Or some music that you happened to hear, or some experience, a concert, or something you went to, or something that moved you, or any number of things, or a quiet moment with a loved one, with a parent, with a child, with a partner you know they catch us off guard here and that's sort of the rabbis say to be conscious of what living is all about we're most conscious of our lives at the end of life 
we're most conscious of the lives of the people we love at the end of their lives. And it's a reminder not to take anything for granted, not to take today for granted, because it's the only day we get. And there may not be a tomorrow. We have today. Here we are. So, Jacob lived... Look, I'm reading it. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. Jacob's days, the years of his life, were 147. Mm -hmm. So, he was 147. Abraham was 175. Isaac was 180. They lived nice, long lives. Except for Jacob, whose days were few. Is there um, special significance to the number 147? Yeah. I mean, you've got 40 in there and you've got 7. Yeah. you got 40 and 7. <laughs> <laughs> and 40 and 7 are two of the most, most yeah. significant numbers in, in the Torah. Um, but, you know, I mean, yes, the rabbis do that, but, yeah. you know. Why are they significant? Well, 40 is... Uh, is a symbol 40 days 40 years is is a symbol of like a generation 40 years is a generation um, you know Moses was on top of the know, mountain 40 days 40 days you go up 40 days it was an ancient sort of numerical symbol of a significant change of status for something 40 and it's a 40 years has historically been the sort of age of a generation and the next generation except for today we have a generation every three years or something like that maybe five years or something you know because <clears throat> things change so fast generation something X, Y, Z if we're at Z already where do we go from there by the way we're already talking about generation Gen Z aren't we A where are we going back to A, A? yeah I'm yeah, just wondering okay so Jacob lived 147 years <coughs> and then suddenly it's Israel Jacob lived 147 years but when Israel's time to die drew near, he summoned his son Joseph and said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and treat me with faithful kindness. What's the... Uh, please do not bury me in Egypt. What's the hand under the thigh thing? Testimony. Literally. Testimony. Testes. That's how you make an oath. How you made an oath. Abraham did it to his servant before he sent his servant off to find a spouse for Isaac. He said, come, put your hand under my thigh. Um, it's a testimony, testes. It's like, you know, if you're a man, it's one of your more... shrivel if I One of your more vulnerable parts. So literally having someone go put their hand there is an act of faith and trust. And this is about making a vow that you're, I trust you. I trust you enough to have you stick your hand on my testicles um, to make a vow that you'll fulfill this vow. What about it, women? women don't count for yeah, vows. In the ancient world, who? They had no legal status. Yeah, women were not allowed to. Women didn't no, have legal status, so it was all different. Harvey defense. Right. Exactly. Exactly. On, on both coasts, evidently. Everywhere. Bicoastal. He was... Never mind. I'm not going there. Even better, he was making a lot of vows. He was, yeah. Yeah, oh, God. No, never mind. Um, I didn't say that. Um, in any event, uh, so he asks Joseph to put his hand on his thigh, 
and make a vow, and the vow is, he's, he's asking him for something. What's he asking him for? Don't bury me in Egypt. When I am laid to rest with my ancestors, carry me out of Egypt, bury me in their burial place. He replied, and he meaning Joseph replied, I will do as you say. And he, now we're back to Jacob, said, swear it to me. So Joseph swore it to him. Israel then bowed down at the head of the bed. It's like as an act of acknowledgement and gratitude. So he's asked his son to take him out of Egypt when he dies and bury him in the family burial plot, which is the cave of Machpelah that we all remember Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite. Um, and that's where Abraham's buried and Isaac's buried. Jacob's going to be buried. Sarah's buried. Rachel is not buried. Leah's buried. You know, it's the family plot. And he made him swear it. Why did he make him swear it? Take an oath? He didn't trust his son? Why do you th- why would why do you make him pick an oath? Do you think? Number one, it certainly communicates how important it is. Is he swearing before God? He is. Because oaths are really, really important in Jewish tradition. Yeah. The reason he's making him swear is because he's in Egypt. He's going to die in Egypt. He's going to die in a foreign land where everything's dependent upon what the Pharaoh agrees to do, let you do or not do. So, in order to assure as best they can that he can, his wishes can be fulfilled, he makes Joseph take an oath, a vow, because vows in every culture are important, deathbed vows called the Homer, as you say, in Hebrew, how much the more so have their own power and have in every culture deathbed vows for the same reason, that there's some more credibility because you're on your deathbed. You've got nothing to lose anymore. Why, why should you make up something, you know, then? Whatever your motives are, people assume there's a certain purity and truth in, you know, death, deathbed confessions is what that is. The deathbed confession. Someone says, I did it. You're supposed to believe them on their deathbed. You're not supposed to second guess them. Someone in the deathbed says, I did this. You're supposed to believe them. So, what happens here is, and you'll see it, If we probably won't get see it, but if you read, read the portion, you'll see it, that when he dies, Joseph can then turn to the Pharaoh and say, I made a pl- pledge to my father to bury him in the family plot back in Canaan. In Canaan, can I go? Please ask. He even doesn't even ask Pharaoh. He asks Pharaoh's advisors, even though he's allegedly the prime minister. You'll see he doesn't even go to Pharaoh directly. It's an indirect ask. He, it says he goes to Pharaoh's people and he says, "I made a pledge to my deathbed pledge to my father. I would bury him in the family burial plot. Would you please ask him if I can do it?" And then, because, and then Pharaoh says, you made a pledge to your father. Yes, go. And, and jo- Joseph 
and his brothers all go, but they leave their kids behind. We're not escaping. I'm not running away, says Joseph. I'll be back, he promises Pharaoh. This isn't like an excuse that I made up so we can get out of town, or I can take the wealth that I might have accrued now that I've been prime minister, you know, and take it out of the country. And so this was an op- a, a way for Joseph to have credibility with Pharaoh and not just say, ah, oh, you know, I think I'd like to take, take my dad home. Yeah. It strikes me of all the things that Jacob could have asked for, just, and maybe it's by today's standards hmm. that the only thing that he asks Joseph for is to be buried somewhere else. I mean, he could have asked him for so many other things. Well, what, what? yeah. I'm trying. Like what? What, what else is there? I don't know. You know, I, I would, I would think, you know, be true to God, be, you know, carry on the family. There's so many things that he could have asked Joseph to do. He says, oh, by the way, you know, he bury me at that. Hillside and not at Mount Sinai. <laughs> right. Seems, no, by today's stand, there must be some huge significance. Yes, what well, I'm, what, well, first, what is first the of big all, significance? first of all, what, what happens in this portion <clears throat> next is he adopts Ephraim and Menashe. Right? Jacob does. Jacob does. Mm-hmm. He, he, he takes care of his own legacy by mm-hmm. formally making them his kids. His grandchildren become his children, and um, in fact, let's read it and I'll get there because I can see how. <laughs> um, so he, he doesn't have to ask for those things because he's taking care of it himself, essentially. <clears throat> and and the lesson here is the importance of Israel. This is all leading to going to the promised land. The land of Israel. The land of Israel. This is all, this whole story is, we're all going to the promised land. Eretz Israel. This is the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's take me back to the land that's mine, oh, and yours, and ultimately will be yours. Ultimately will be the Jewish people's. When you get there, it's going to be a while. We've got a few hundred years of slavery first, but eventually we'll get there. And to cement that, I want to be buried there. That's our plot. And that's a reminder of what, you know, the right wing, so to speak, in Israel, how they'll use this text, which is, we bought that piece of property, that thing called Israel. We bought it, fair and square. We even paid an exorbitant price for it. We overpaid for it. We paid retail for it. God forbid. We paid retail for it, and it's ours. And it's been ours for thousands of years, and here's the proof. Right? This is our, we have a deed, so to speak. That's part of this. So after these things, I'm going to get to the part that I like anyway. They said to Joseph, look, your father is fading. So he took his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. When they told Jacob, saying, look, your son Joseph has come. Israel rallied, sat up in bed. You know how that happens. Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai, one of God's many names, appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, saying, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a multitude of peoples. I will give this land to your seed after you as an everlasting possession. Remember, he's having this conversation in Egypt. Mm -hmm. He's reminding Joseph, don't forget, 
this is not our place. And only with Joseph. And only to Joseph. Well, he'll tell them later stuff. Now then, your two sons, your two sons, born to you in the land of Egypt before my arrival in Egypt, they're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be to me like Reuben and Simeon and Shimon. But your progeny, whom you engender after them, they're yours. They will be called by their brothers' names in their family allotment. And I, as I'm coming from Padan, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the road, only a stretch of ground before reaching Ephrat. Ephrat is a modern Israeli city. Today I buried her there on the way to Ephrat. That is Bethlehem. I used to walk to Bethlehem from Jerusalem when I lived there. Um, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he asked, Who are these? Obviously, they didn't have a close relationship. Actually, that's not it. Just like Isaac at the end of Jacob's life, he, didn't, he couldn't see. His eyes were dimmed. He couldn't tell who was who. Remember the famous switch, bait and switch of Isaac, going, thinking he's blessing one son, and, the, and it's Jacob, of course, who <laughs> lies to him and says, Yes, I'm, I'm Esau. Bless me, Daddy. Who are these? Joseph said, They're my sons whom God has given me here. Jacob said, bring them to me, pray that I may bless them. Israel's eyes had grown clouded with age, he could no longer see. Joseph brought them over to him, whereupon he kissed and hugged them. Israel then said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and here God has shown me your progeny as well. Imagine the, the, what he was feeling at the end of his life. Joseph then removed them from his knees, bowed down before him to the ground. Joseph took the two of them, Ephraim with his right hand, to Israel's left, Manasseh with his left hand to Israel's right and he brought them close to him but of course as has been in every single generation up to now it's the younger who takes precedence over the elder so Israel goes instead of blessing them like this which would have been the way they were set up oldest youngest he went and gave his primary blessing to the youngest that's how it's worked in every generation. Israel stretched out his right hand and placed it in Ephraim's head, even though he was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his arms, though Manasseh was the firstborn. He then blessed Joseph, saying, The God before whom walked my fathers Abraham and Isaac, the God who has shepherded me ever since I came into being until this day, the angel who has rescued me from all harm, bless these lads through them. Let my name and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac ever be recalled. Let them greatly multiply within the land. He's given a lot of blessing to these little kids, Ephraim and Manasseh. When Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand in Ephraim's head, it seemed wrong to him, so he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head into the head of Manasseh. Joseph said to his father, Not that way, father. This is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused, saying, I know, my son, I know. He too shall become a people. He too shall be great. Yet his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you shall the people of Israel give their blessing, saying, This, of course, is one of the punchlines of this whole portion. Jacob says, Through you... Through you, Israel will bless, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. So, as many, if not most of you know, 
this then became the primary Shabbat Friday night, here it is Friday, Friday night blessing for boys. The Friday night children's boy blessing of Jewish tradition is to repeat these words that Jacob gave to and say, put your hands on your son's head and say, May God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. It's not, May God make you like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not, May God make you like Moses. May God make you like King David. It's, May God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. Of all the people in Jewish history, two people that most Jewish kids don't even know about, have any clue who they are. You want me to be like Ephraim and Menashe? So the obvious question that many of you know the answer to is, why Ephraim and Menashe? Why are they the ones we, we, that we say we like our sons to grow up to be like Ephraim and Menashe? And the answer is? They're the next generation. They will carry on the family. The answer is, who, who are Ephraim and Menashe? Egyptian. So who are they? They were born in Egypt. Mm-hmm. They are the sons of whom? Israel. They are the sons first of Joseph, Joseph. and Joseph's wife, who is? The daughter of an Egyptian priest. Her name is Osnat. She is the daughter of an Egyptian priest, one of those famous interfaith marriages we hear so much about. So, here we have Ephraim and Manasseh, first kids born in the diaspora, the first children born outside of Israel, born in Egypt, born, his mother isn't Jewish, by the way. Yeah. Just saying. Mother isn't Jewish. For all those who were upset my whole career that I was so involved in marrying... Anyway, so, and they become two of the tribes of Israel. Even though they have every reason to have nothing to do with Judaism, the Jewish people, Israel, the collective Israel people at all, where did they grow up? For God's sake, their father was like number two in Egypt. They grew up in like all the wealth and the riches and the, you know, in the palace. They're like in Buckingham Palace, these two. They're growing up. They're the kids in Buckingham Palace running around all, with, you know, TMZ following them everywhere they go. <laughs> Tell me, look what happened to El Ephraim. You know, he was out there with Susie last night, you know, doing drugs or whatever it is that they're doing. And yet, even though by all expectations they should have assimilated, disappeared, said, you, you want me to go to this funky like shepherds in <laughs> where you came from grandpa no nah, I don't think so you don't know how I'm living my life in the riches of the palace and and yet Ephraim, Ephraim not only that Ephraim becomes in Jewish history the uh, primary northern tribe Judah the tribe of Judah becomes the primary southern tribe from which we get our names, Jews. We are Yehudim from Yehudah, Judah. That's where, you know, King David and all those people come. From the south, the north, often in Jewish literature, even the term Ephraim, making reference to the tribe of Ephraim, 
is the equivalent of making reference to all of the northern tribes that became the lost tribes. That, that powerful, that important. Ephraim. Ephraim and Manasseh become the first symbols of that no matter where we're born, no matter where we're raised, no matter how we're raised, no matter who we are, we can still express, connect with our people and they are the, the literal embodiment of what it means to be a diaspora Jew who stays connected to the Jewish people. And throughout the last several thousand years, we have primarily been a minority and a majority culture in the diaspora. You know, it's only 10 years ago that Israel came into being again as a sovereign state. So for the vast majority of Jewish history, every son was an Ephraim or Manasseh. Every child was an Ephraim or Manasseh being born in a foreign country. One, two, three, four, yeah. Joseph picked Ephraim as the favorite of the two, the better of the two, because he crossed his hands. He made it. Jacob did, yeah. To say, I'm blessing. I'm blessing the younger. Yes. Over the. So then why is the prayer include Ephraim and Manasseh? Why not just... Well, because they're the first two. They are both of them the sons who were the first children born in the diaspora who both became tribes. So both of them, one's bigger than the other. What Really what he was saying is you're going to be more successful than the older. You know, and which it's is not necessarily like a Cain and Abel, one's bad and one's good. No, it's neither of them is bad. It's just you're going to have supremacy over the other. Yeah, the other the younger, the older one is going to also have you know be okay, but it's the younger one who's really going to going to be the the number one success. <coughs> yes. Is there any discussion that this could be uh, having a prophecy from the state prophecy that Jews will be mostly in the diaspora? Well, yeah, yeah. The rabbis think, I mean, in the Talmud, there's all this conversation about Jacob seeing the, you know, the whole rest of the history of the Jewish people and about to, you know, in fact, there's a statement in the Talmud that says Jacob was gathered everybody, his kids together, which he's doing in a minute that we're never going to get to, and, you know, gives them their literally a prophecy of who you're going to be and what you're like. And, and he was about to tell them the entire history of the Jewish people till the end of days when the Messiah is going to come and we're all going to like, I don't know, dance in Jerusalem or whatever we're going to do when the Messiah shows up. Um, and because he was going to do that, he died. He died. God took that moment of prophecy away from him because we're not supposed to know these things, said the rabbis. Yeah. You're not supposed to know the end of days. It's like, you're supposed to like live today as if this is the day that matters, not be seduced by people telling you, I know what's going to happen and I'm going to tell you and therefore follow me. Yeah. yeah. At what point historically did um, your Judaism depend on the mother being Jewish. Talmud, Talmudically. Much later. Yeah, I mean, biblically, it's like, it follows from the father, as you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> biblically, it's, you know, you're, and then in rabbinic, in the rabbinic period, uh, the, the Babylonian Talmud primarily, in, from Babylonia, in which the things, the, the um, identity issue switched, allegedly, primarily, because we were in captivity. And because of the obvious things in captivity, what happens when you get enslaved? 
families get broken up. I mean, apart from the rape and all that other stuff, which is also part of it, that is, women who uh, have no power um, anyway, and then even less power when they're taken captive, and, um, and you can't always tell who the father is, but theoretically you know who the mother is, so, and when you're taken into captivity, the first thing that the captive captors do is they break up families. I mean, that's what we did with all of our African slaves. You know, you break up families. You don't want any, you don't want them. So, it's mother-child. It's mothers who raise child. So, then it it shifted to all the 20th century. You know, it became that. uh, Yes, George. This was the same question. This sounds inconsistent. Marrying your chicks and then having the kid. And the Orthodox think that you're not a Jew unless your mother is Jewish. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> what do they know? The, uh, <laughs> this is yeah. after the 20th century. Now it's changed again. Well, it, it changed initially with the Reconstructionist movement in the 1970s. Uh, it was the first movement, then the Reform movement did the same thing. Um, formally passed these rules called patrilineal descent in which they said if, uh, if the father why should it be one and not the other we, we don't live in the previous era we live in an era when you actually can find out who parents are uh, plus it's more important how people are raised and the identity they're given than what their parents biology is or genetics is so, so first the reconstruction then the reform movement <coughs> formally said that if a child has any either parent uh, that is Jewish and is raised Jewish and is told they're Jewish and they call themselves Jewish, they're Jewish. Equally Jewish, whether it's one parent or both parents or whether it's the father or the mother or whatever. Um, you know, so that, that's that been a divide in the Jewish world ever since because the conservative movement didn't go along with it and the orthodoxy obviously didn't go along with it. So there's still these differing issues and challenges about Jewish identity and people say, no, you're not really Jewish unless your mother's Jewish or, you know, or, or you were converted or you converted or your mother converted or whatever. So, you know, because they're Jews and so we like to argue about everything. God forbid we should just go, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and really, literally, I mean, I have to say, um, when I was ordained in 1976, the second wedding I did, I guess, was an interfaith wedding. Um, and it was, um, I mean, it was very, it was unusual, and most rabbis, the vast majority, or hardly any rabbis, were officiating, willing to officiate interfaith marriages, and I just always have. Um, but I had a different attitude than most people. Yeah, so <clears throat> time's up, I guess. Um, so, number one, I'll apologize for not having read more of the Torah. Number two, I passed out to some of you yet another brilliant chapter from my brilliant book, A Year with Mordecai Kaplan. And if you don't have it yet, I don't know, there's a few copies floating around. You can buy the book.